just connecting to our own erotic self in a healthy way just to validate it and to give it some space and to listen to ourselves to see what would I like out of this part of my life. You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 104, The Healthy Triggers, a Beacon Series conversation featuring Laura Zam, sexuality educator, certified trauma professional, and author of The Pleasure Plan, One Woman's Search for Sexual Healing. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. When I read Laura Zam's book, The Pleasure Plan, I could clearly see how her work with trauma and its effects on human sexuality would be of great value to me personally. In her book, Laura opens up about her own traumatic experiences, sharing very candid details that created serious intimacy issues, not only with her and her partners, but with herself. If you listen to this show often, you know that I advocate exploring our inner workings, going precisely to the pain to apply healing light. Laura, it seems, approves the same course of action. By taking this path herself, she has turned what she discovered into a source of wellness, pleasure, and sexual healing for others. I was surprised to learn that The Pleasure Plan was her first book in our conversation. She has a natural storytelling ability, a gift of drawing the reader into each situation, painting fine lines and fleshing out details adding volume to the spaces and circumstances she shares. Laura cuts right through the noise by saying what needs to be said, even if the subject seemed taboo, and her comfort in sharing discomfort put me at ease. In this episode, I opened up and talked about things I've never spoken of before. I believe that is because Laura created a space of listening, love, and genuine care. She understands that for people to speak freely about traumatic experiences, particularly sexual trauma. They need to know they are safe and witnessed with eyes of non-judgment. Human beings are sexual creatures, and sex should be a source of joy and pleasure, not a fearful reminder of sorrow, shame, or pain. Thankfully, there are people in this world like Laura Zam that understand this, and more, they put themselves on personal missions to help others. Now, it's time to get comfortable. I mean really, really comfortable. Open yourself to the idea that there might be something just for you in this conversation. Then tune your attention to this Good News Beacon and press play on a little good news. Wake up this morning, dreaming up the story I can hear. The way it's going, cause you're laughing in your sleep. On the path to your deliverance and a holy ball of light. Old news, bad news, fake news. Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source. With my Find the Good News Beacon series, I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them. I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. 
looking forward to our conversation uh you know i've been reading your book and then i've been going through all of your videos and your story i honestly i I connect with it on so many levels uh i don't even really know where to begin i I told my wife last night i said i'm really looking forward to this though because there's so many things little parallels that i drew from your story i'm sure you have that happen with a lot of people as you've told your story to people and and through your book especially yeah, it's uh yeah, I think people identify with it. Um it's kind of, you know, different people take different things and I, I and it's fantastic for me to see particularly groups of people that might um, you know, particular particularly uh connect with it, you know, like women of a certain age or people who've experienced, you know, some sort of issues, uh, you know, have a history, some kind of a history with regard to um, you know, all kinds of dysfunction, abuse, uh yeah. You know, which is I think most of us, you know, have something that we're we're something challenging in our past that we're healing perpetually and 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 I really 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 appreciate the work that you're doing Oren because you know it's just so stressful to look at the news to keep track of everything that's right. going on and I hear people say all the time why can't why can't the media focus on on the good things that are happening why can't we be uplifted when we yeah. engage Media. So this is just, um, and I, I'm I'm also a seeker. So I really do also connect with uh, with with that part of your journey and oh, your guests. Oh, thank you. Well. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. I uh-huh. you're right. I I think about that after I have a conversation. I mean, usually each one of these talks, and I, I mean, it, there's so many podcasts as you know, and there's so many media channels that people are producing out there. Yeah. But I, I don't I don't mean this uh, with without the true gravity that is attached to it when I say that each one uh-huh. of these conversations I've had has stuck with me. I mean, they've actually changed my life. Now, whether they've changed my life in a dramatic way or just changed it in the sense that I've I've uh, explored myself in new ways, you know, or looked at the world a little differently, or just sometimes. The truth of the matter is something will happen and I'll go, oh, this is this reminds me of a conversation I had with someone else. And I'm able to lean on their um, experience or their story or what they've been through or just something they shared. And and I find that just that generalized human wisdom, it does exist. Yeah. And there's so many wise people out there. And it is easy to forget that when we're saturated by just wave upon wave of tailored negative news you know yeah it does exactly affect- right. so, you know it's just so crisis oriented and there might be one big news event but then it's just it's got to fill hours and hours of programming so if they just you know spin it this way and spin it and and it's like it's not that big of a story <laughs> right oh i know and it just keeps going on and on see that's why I think that's probably why I love talking to people like you and particularly Uh what I think I'm going to enjoy about this conversation, because this is sort of the mystery spot 
where I think awakening and healing actually happens in a story like yours and the way it's alchemy, you know, a lot of people are using that term again. Yeah. And then I I identify with that a lot. You're definitely doing that. I mean, you're, there's pain in there. I mean, no doubt. And real pain, not just, um, not, and I don't want to belittle anybody's pain. I mean, if you're feeling pain, it's real pain, no matter where it's coming from, whether it's self-inflicted yeah. internally or externally sure. by forces you can't control. But, you know, you have a healthy dose of all of those things that happened in your life. And I'm looking at that and I'm going, but look, look at what you're doing. I mean, you you walk right into it. <laughs> and you just you tra- turn it into help for others. I mean, I don't know that there's any thing more holy than that. I just can't think of anything is to take your personal pain and heal yourself, but also heal others through that. That's just something to me that it, it's just gold, you know? Awesome. Thank you. I, I really do appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, you're, um, you're a good soul. So I, I, I take that to heart. Well, you know, so uh, people understand. Uh, I want people to. I'm, I've kind of jumped right in, and I usually do that on this show. I just get going, and I. Uh, <laughs> I don't want people to to not understand the context about and what we're talking about. So, if you don't mind, just for a minute here, if you could give um, a slow, a little introduction of yourself to my listeners, and uh, we can go from there. Sure. I'm Laura Zam. I'm a sexuality educator, relationship coach, certified trauma professional, and yoga teacher, and uh, I and an author. I'm the author of a book called The Pleasure Plan, which came out this past May. And The Pleasure Plan is a story about my journey healing from sexual violation and six different kinds of sex problems to heal myself right after getting married for the first time at 46 i went on a journey seeing 15 different kinds of practitioners and trying 30 different healing modalities and i was able to cure myself this way and also discover all kinds of good things (laughs) all kinds of good things in the world and all kinds of remedies for uh, lots of different sexual issues associated with trauma and associated with any kind of, basically any kind of issue. And so I I feel really blessed to have been able to do that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so, um, I got so much out of your, your book and I'm hoping that you can, well, I know you will. I, it's interesting because I'm not a victim, right, of any kind of uh, sexual trauma. But when I was reading your book, it got me really thinking about just trauma in general. Mm-hmm. And I know you work with people for, in, in different categories of trauma, correct? Yeah, I do. But I, what I thought was really interesting is how, and I think about this all the time, I mean, I've always had as far back as I can remember a very um, odd relationship with sex, with sex. Mm. And even to this day, it still exists. But I, in reading your book, I started putting some pieces together 
you know, huh. and looking at all these little breadcrumbs. And I was like, man, it's interesting because the traumas that I, I was connected to, they weren't mine, but they were people that were close to me that I cared about. And because I was, I guess, you tell a story in your book about your brother mm-hmm. that really hit me really hard uh, where you told your brother about your neighbor, your neighbor. Right. And the assault. And, yeah. uh, and he was a gr- grandfather, correct? To one of your friends. Am I telling that yeah, properly? Exactly. To a, a girl on the block that I was friendly with. Mm-hmm. So when I was reading that part of your story, I was like, it brought me back to something that I think about all the time and how things can get rewired for a child at a young age. Right. And, it just, it, it was a story very similar where someone very, and I don't, it's not my story to tell, so I'm going to tell it as vaguely as possible, okay. but I am a, in the story. But someone close to me, uh, almost like, it was almost such a, a, a parallel to what you told, huh. where I had a, a sort of good relationship with an elderly person, and then I found out that someone close to me did not have a good relationship, and they were afraid of that person. And when I was almost offended when they said something like, I don't like that person. I don't like them. And that that bothered me. Like, I was like, how could you not Mm. like them? And then they told me about what was happening. And, of course, we were very, very, very young. Little. I mean, young children, you know, like four and eight. And I all of a sudden I felt the gravity of that person's pain like on me it was like my pain then my duty to try to make things right so i i felt like it was important that that part that it be told and that was it wasn't my place to tell but i felt like i was trying to protect this person and telling on this adult for what they were doing but when i started re- when i was reading your book it was like the way you described the way that made you feel for it to be told to an adult. I was like, God, I don't know. Did I do the wrong thing? Because what ended up happening was there was no justice. There was no repercussions to the adult. The adult, it was shoved because of embarrassment to a, to a larger network of people. It was sort of decided that it would all kept be kept hush hush and all the adults would sort of run interference to protect the children, but there was never any real justice. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I think about how that rewired me and the victim. Wow. Because it changed, it taught us that there is no justice. That was what we learned, that adults don't do the right thing. You can't trust them. Authority, people in authority over you will not make the right decision and they won't protect you. Mm -hmm. They would rather save face. And so it created and it was all around sexuality, like in my mind, even and I go I think about that as as how I know I see how it affected the the other person. But for me, as a man who it wasn't me, it happened to, but I can see the seeds of that in all of my different sexual relationships that I've had. I 
and it's almost like a fear i don't know how else to describe it but it was like a fear of hurting someone like i always felt like because i was a man that to want or enjoy sex just freely and fully that i was some kind of perpetrator (laughs) like i was um yeah victimizing someone even though i was i mean you know it was i never did it was never like that but i felt i can be if i'm being honest i mean full disclosure i can see that i go wow i do have that it got entangled in my sexual the sexual part of my life yeah your book really pulled that out for me wow i mean that is that's something that um i hear a lot i talk to a lot of guys after reading my book or just knowing about what uh knowing about my work yeah and what i'm writing about i haven't quite heard that but it makes total sense it makes incredible sense and i i really think that it's i think it's very common i think there's a lot of layers for men that are just we're not talking about at all i mean there's a whole there's the men who were abused as boys de facto. Sure. That's still very, very, very difficult to uncover for them to come out. And, and there's so, so much shame around that. But I think that there are all these nuances that you're talking about and these layers of complexity. What I hear a lot is men who tell me that they they were involved with someone who was abused mm. and that they tried to be the good guy to ah. heal them basically and to to repair the damage and that they weren't often they were they felt that they were not able to do that that this person never really trusted them and they carry that wound tremendously that they were not able to um, to to save this person, but also to be that good person. And I think it's connected to what you're saying: this feeling of responsibility, and um, and somehow feeling indicted. And I don't want to say this in a in a controversial way because I, I think it's just a, a big conversation that needs to happen. But in many ways, the way that we're teaching prevention is. Is exacerbates that a little bit, and I'm. I, 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 this is not to take away from any kinds of consent education or affirmative consent or bystander education. I think that that's necessary. I think it's fantastic the way that it's often taught, but I do think we need an augment to recognize this part of it that men often. Um, they do feel implicated, and what do we do with those feelings, and how do we how do we harness that because i think that men want to be healers i really really think that this is ingrained and and that this is uh, can be part of a very healthy masculinity yeah but i don't feel like we're really harnessing yet it yet instead we're you know we're saying you're a guy and therefore you've got these tendencies or you you go ahead and you yeah. fix men you fix that toxic masculinity and come back to me. And I think there's, there's some, there's a real missed opportunity there. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I, I have similar thoughts and, and, and things that I've thought about like that as well. I mean, it's interesting cause you know how one conversation leads to the next, but I guess I came right out of a conversation 
yesterday about feminine energy and it got me thinking along those lines about what what kind of energies do I have in myself and I do think there are men who have uh, feminine energies in them that are more prominent and, and they are more nurturing and perhaps more healing and, and calling them feminine doesn't necessarily mean to say that they are female you know and I think that's a good thing you're right it's like a, it's okay to for men to have those characteristics and want to be healers but right now there's almost like this uh, polar polarized backlash so, for instance, as I was reading your book, I, I was trying to almost go through what would it take for me to be completely whole, you know, and healed to get over this idea of and it's not like it's a, a front facing idea. It's almost like an undercurrent that I'm yeah. hurting. Somehow I'm doing something wrong. Yeah. When I desire and allow or allow myself to desire sex even with my wife i mean it's crazy but it's like this it's like i just yeah. was like man it's like even it's that like I, because i love her this is the, this is the equation right. if this makes any sense because i love her i don't want to abuse her <laughs> like right. as if just uh just having normal healthy sex is some kind of abuse and i think that got planted i really do i think there's something in there yeah. I don't know how to root it out. I mean, awareness is one part, but it's there. I can see it clearly. And I hadn't really ever thought of that. I was wow, just like, man, I, this is something that's old, of course, mm -hmm. you know, uh, from long yeah. ago. <laughs> but I think there is a remedy in that because I, I did, I, I did, uh, I, I said I, it's not a conversation I have um, often but it is a conversation. I'm thinking as we're talking, it is a conversation in some ways I have had with people I've been involved with, including my husband. Ah. And it, and so I think that there is a remedy in there. And the remedy is a, a kind in relationship, particularly, it is a kind of, it's a context of mutual healing. Mm. And it's, uh, and that healing is also about empowerment. And it's empowering both parties to to be very open, really communicative about what their needs and their desires are, you know, so that it's uh, to free it without guilt, without shame, without fear that it's going to hurt another person. Yeah. And I think that uh, and then also creating this space for both people or multiple, you know, <laughs> if that's a relationship configuration. But um for people to say, oh, you know what, this is not, this doesn't work for me, this is triggering, or this is too much, or this is not something I want, or this is, this. we need to compromise on this because, uh, you know, this doesn't quite work for me. I think that it really boils down to that communication and to see that, to see the evolution of the relationship in this department as Healing to me is a, is then a, maybe a useful word because then it's it's about it's about going forward, but maybe also it's about bringing in things from the past that might need some kinds of rewiring. Yeah, I, I know I've definitely done that with my husband, and it is something that's not explicitly in the book, but maybe it is implicit in the book that the more vocal I got about 
what was going on for me and what I wanted and, and how I wanted things to, to unfold, the, the, the more I freed my husband to say, wait a minute, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I need healing too, uh, but also to, to, uh, so that he didn't feel that he was uh, attacking me, right? Because now I'm, I'm just openly saying, okay, yeah, this is what I want, and hey, no, not, not, not so much that. You know, yeah. just as in a concrete example, you know, I'm tired at night. I'm, I'm the type of person. Seven p.m. is sort of, <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the uh, demarcation for me. Before seven p.m., I'm like, really can do anything. After seven, I'm like, I'm just going to want to veg out on the couch and then go to sleep. So, you know, so the traditional, okay, let's, um, you know, let's get romantic, you know, right before bedtime just doesn't work for me because I'm tired. So I had to reconfigure it in my mind and say, well, what, what time of day would work better? And it really just, that simple shift really revolutionize things because it wasn't him, you know, pescering, you know, pescering me, um, you know, or, uh, and then feeling rejected or, you know, or feeling like he's, you know, harming me in some way by, by having a desire at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, it was clear that that's not going to go over well, but, uh, you know, another time of day, things were like, okay, we, we just could stay clear of that. Yeah, this is interesting. I I didn't ever really think of that before, but you know, when your partner and you are on um, different circadian rhythms, right? That can be an issue. I mean, when, for intimacy, for instance. I mean, yeah. I can tell you, even with my wife and I, we are we have completely different. She she is definitely prefers to sleep in. And she could stay up a little, you know, later perhaps. And I am a very early riser. Like, I would get up at 3.45, 4 o'clock in the morning. I like the sunrise. I like to get up and walk and then meditate and then watch everyone else wake up. But that means I get tired earlier, right? So we are, there right. is, there's a zone somewhere in there where we're both vital. And yeah. unfortunately, <laughs> it's probably around the middle of the work day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you, uh, you... That's a conversation that I think is might be interesting for yeah. you, for you, and your wife. <laughs> yeah, those are things that your book you get into a lot of that type of territory, and I was like, these are conversations that we're not having that we probably should have, and once we find that time zone, we can work around that instead of working around each being countersinked to each other. You know what I mean? And that's sometimes I think a lot of couples perhaps go through that. I've talked to other people where I, you you get the impression that their lives are um, they're just on a string sort of swinging around each other. But there's no middle. You know, they're swinging around their kids or they're swinging around their jobs. And a way that my visualization for that is like a just an axis in the middle with two iron balls and, you know, whatever's in the middle, whether it's. A, a sick parent or a, a crisis or a job or whatever it is, they're both just sort of swinging around it on opposite ends. Yeah. And it's still a relationship, you know, of sorts, but it's just that, that intimacy in the middle is difficult to get to because the gravity is pulling them away to some degree, but they're tethered. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, definitely. Because there is a, there is a, a, an intimacy glue that can get undone. And when we disconnect from each other, just romantically, you know, not just physical intimacy. And, uh, 
Yeah, and then it's hard to find, and so the center just becomes these you know, shared responsibilities or, or a shared abode, and um, we're just, you know, we happen to live together, and something, it, it can feel, yeah, like something profound is missing, and what's missing is the, I think, that, that really intense validation and, and love and oxytocin and, you know, all the all those goodies of, of, of feeling, of loving and feeling loved, and uh, yeah, but it and it can be hard to find our way back to it. But I, I think it, in some ways, it's easy to find our way back. But I, I don't think we often have very concrete solutions because we're not talking about it enough and yeah. normalizing the fact that you know that this happens and it's not a cliche, it's not a joke, um, it's a it's a pathway, you know. You know, and we need we need a pathway. I teach an online course. Uh, I just created it, and it it, oh. it looks at that. And I, I I call it a pleasure a pleasure access point. You know, oh, for yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, for uh, individuals, but also couples. You know, where they they just kind of ease back onto the path. But even each time that they're together romantically, it might require that as well because we're just uh, our day is like that too as you're describing where it's revolving around all these responsibilities and then it's like oh wait we said we were going to make love today um <laughs> yeah okay let me yeah. let me find my way into that mood oh right no right i yes totally get that it's it's interesting the way you worded that let me get myself into that zone it gets into things that I, I really think about all the time, which is identity, you know, and who am I? And, and for the most part, I mean, if you really think about it, we're all a bunch of different people. I mean, we can say we're one person, but if you really focus on it, you do take on different roles throughout the day, throughout the year, I mean, throughout your life, and they are in different zones, and they're almost like... um just like when you put a jacket on, to me, it's like putting a jacket on when it's cold outside. It, it's the same right. sort of thing. It's like, well, I'm entering this zone. I need to wear this, the ball. I mean, it's still me, but I need to attach myself with these other things because this is what I'm going to do. This yeah. is the identity. I need to sort of convalesce around myself for this task. Yeah. And I know that sounds very clinical, but I mean, sex could no, probably no, be like I that. I spoke with my, with my dear friend, Bridget. Uh, Bridget Dengel Gaspar. Oh, yeah, did. that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, and uh, Bridget's an old friend of mine, but her book changed my life. Really? I mean, seriously, it did. We, I know Bridget from acting school 25 oh, years ago. Oh, okay. Um, and our paths have crossed since that time uh, a, a few times, and in the past 10 years especially. And she, when she told me she was doing voice dialogue, I thought I didn't really get it what it was. I mean, I, I got it a little bit conceptually and I'm like, oh, that's nice. Uh, but then I read her book recently and I thought, oh, my gosh, I really need to, to do this kind of work. And it just it set me on my own voice dialogue path. I just I can't speak highly enough. Of, of that work and of Bridget in particular. Interesting. It, That's such really a beautiful profound. intersection. I mean, I can see how that that does inform what you're doing. I mean, what you just uh -huh. said, even about entering that zone, yeah, of of sex of sex time. You know, I mean, whatever yeah. it is. And I, yeah, I've I've always 
again, even talking about this, and I'll say something that's really personal, but it's the way that I, I can observe the way my mind works. Just hearing you say that, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I have this idea that sex must be um, elevated. It has mm-hmm. to be um, sacred. Yeah. And when it's not that, then I'm uh, an offender. I know that's crazy, but it's, and uh-huh. I don't like to use the word crazy, but that's the way it's wired in my head. And I, it goes back to what I told you in the beginning. So if I'm doing anything that isn't in that sacred space or making it that way, only that way, uh-huh. then I should probably not do it if I can't right, make right. it that way. So what ends up happening is honestly, that's very difficult to do if you're going to have a normal, healthy sexual relationship with someone on a regular basis. That's difficult to elevate sex to sacred status. Yeah, time. So right. if you're going to exactly. avoid it altogether, and I'm about to draw a really weird line, but this is kind of gets into territory about the way I f- it's the opposite of how I feel about things like the Catholic mass, for in- for instance, like it's elevated it's sacred all these things have to happen it has to have this it has to be on cue and everyone has to have their rubber stamps and be doing everything right and not be divorced and all the rules that surround it but i take the opposite approach with that i go yeah it is a sacred thing but it needs to be brought down to earth so common people who aren't perfect can approach that and get the same great, beautiful things out of it. I think it should just be opened up and poured out into commonplace. Uh-huh. Right? And so yeah, it's weird that I would, you know, it's like I take that and I look at that and I go, well, let me look at sex. So with sex, I'm like making yeah. a mass out of it. But, uh-huh, I, right, but why exactly. won't I just bring it down to earth and let it just be normal and good? Does that make sense? That does. And because I think that sex also draws upon the more animal part of us and in a in a way that is very beautiful and also it has is it's is sacred in its own kind of way in terms of our rootedness to to the planet and to reproduction and yeah, to right. and to growth and this very very material aspect of of being and so i think it uh, you know like you could think of it as connecting us to to all right. all living things on the planet and you know so it's it's that and it's also something that might be more elevated and and spiritual right. in a way that that's um that's beyond the material plane and so i think it's uh, it's allowing ourselves to hold both of those and to to have both of those inform the experience experience without feeling like we've got a privilege one or the other or if one is is more activated now like the animal is more activated let's say than the the you know the priestly yeah right <laughs> priestly right experience that that's somehow wrong or bad when in fact we need both of those i think ideally yeah gosh i i get it i mean it's exactly what you're saying it's like a a harmony but i i can see how it can get askew i think it has something to do ultimately with taking a position. I mean, I, for me, I guess it goes back to pain. I mean, ultimately when you've had some sort of pain or something in there that sets the, I guess the perspective at a young age, mm-hmm. it, uh, it changes your view on things and you don't realize it's, it's done it. You don't even know it till later. 
You know, there right. was something else I wanted to talk to you about because I, I, I definitely got that out of your work and your book was entanglements. You know, we talk a lot about that on this show, like how one thing that is unrelated to gets entangled with another type of trauma and or sometimes something a, a physical ailment arises out of a trauma, but it is very real. And then it becomes its own kind of trauma all on its own. And I kind of picked that. I got that from your book, too. You when you were talking about your physical pain, you know, at the beginning of your journey and when you were trying to discover what it was. And I related to that because, I mean, even as a man, because I for I've never talked about this on the show before, but I for 17 years suffered with. Well, what I thought it was a your your this chronic urinary tract infections. Wow. And they just kept for seventeen years it was like they kept getting worse and worse and worse. Like I mean, like I'm talking to the point where I would be hospitalized and catheterized repetitively. And no yeah. one could figure out what it was. I mean, it was just years of this suffering. I mean, it was going to the bathroom was suffering constantly. Wow. Uh, having an orgasm was suffering and i mean it was and when i would have be having a flare-up having an orgasm i mean this is really probably too much too much information for some people but it would be <laughs> like <laughs> but i mean i read your book so i know what's <laughs> no tmi <laughs> but i thought about this when i was reading your book i was like oh i remember this pain like when i i was afraid to climax because of the pain there was always pain. I mean, excruciating. And sometimes having an orgasm would almost start a cascade of another round of urinary tract infections where yeah, I would be completely urethra, blocked off. Urethra is, is involved in both processes. That's right. And that sounds like that's, that's a culprit. Yeah. So I did that for about 17 years. And in the midst of that, I got divorced and remarried. And then it's like having a new partner, you have to tell them, hey, look. I'm going to have pain. It's going to be weird. You have to explain all this stuff and you're like embarrassed about it. And it creates like all this attention around your groin. You know, it's like so many conversations about what's going down on going on down there. Do you know what I mean? Nothing, nothing sexy about that. But, you know, you're going, OK, I have to be I have to disclose this because it's going to come up. You know, I can't hide it. Uh, but then I finally. Yeah on one emergency room visit had a urologist who figured out what was wrong. What was it? A mutation. I had a mutation that was causing a deep inside my urethra, like way up inside my body. It was actually created, started out as a calloused ring around the urethra that kickstarted a urinary tract infection. And then that would cause a bladder infection then kidney infection. It was like, it would all you know, it was back and forth, this and yeah. then antibiotics and antibiotics. And then he said all the all the years of being catheterized and, and just this 15 years, 16 years of um, infections. Now it has completely it would it would tear open and then reheal and tear and reheal. And then on this last round, I was telling him, I said, I am completely closed off. I can't do anything. And he yeah. saw that when he went in with a scope and he, he cut it open. He showed me the picture. He said, this all need this whole section needs to be cut out. And so they went in through my groin and cut out 
you know, a section of urethra and reattached it. And now I haven't had a problem since for years. I mean, it's been, but it was like, it was like an angel from heaven came down and healed me. I mean, I told my wife that I said it changed my life. He, he fixed me, but I, I guess I'm getting, I'm, that's a long story, but it reminded me of your, the pain you were talking about in your book, because what happened, even though I got healed, I still have that in my head that sex is going to hurt. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, as I'm now seven years healed and I still think it when I have sex, that it's going to hurt. Yeah, it's true. That's, that's, and that's exactly what, uh, that's what I experienced as well. And, and also all these people I work with yeah. that have <laughs> pelvic pain, it's, uh, and it's, the biggest, biggest obstacle for all of us is uh, first is this kind of despondency, feeling like it's never going to be better because it's just gone on and on and on. Yeah. And that once it does get better, hopefully it does. And it is about finding the right practitioner, which can take a while. But once it does, there's always right that we are now wired to to um, to expect the worst. Yeah. And to, to, we're hypervigilant around it, and that can also hamper us. So it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of layers there. That's why I'm, I'm actually starting my own podcast, Oren. I oh, think it's wow. going to be February. I'm, I'm working out the, the timing as Exciting. we speak. But it's going to be a, a, all about sexual healing. And uh, and I I'm going to ju- I just want to talk about all these issues that we're not talking about that go on for men that go on for women <laughs> right. that go on for people of of uh, you know genders that don't identify as either or switch from one to the other and sure and we all have, we all have so much in common but. First of all, none of us are, are speaking about it openly because we all feel respectively ashamed. But we're, there's not any any cross conversation around this. So this is this is amazing. This is such a gift, right? You telling me about your pelvic pain, right? Reading about my own pelvic pain, and when when do we have this opportunity? Right. You no, know, right? With people of different genders, uh, you know. People of the same gender know, but this is like so rare. <laughs> yeah, I thought that when I before I, that's why I kept I know I kept telling you like I couldn't wait to talk to you because I I really sometimes in any conversation that's for public consumption there's almost a tendency to take to you know craft it a little bit or curate it a little bit and I've tried to not do that on the show but I've allowed each guest's um, life and what they're about and what they're doing to sort of. I look in myself basically and go, how is this affecting me when I'm when I'm reading this or experiencing what they're saying? And what kept coming up out of your work for me was very personal and very intimate. And I thought I would be doing such a disservice if I didn't tell you these things, because this is almost exactly what it seems like you're trying to help people with. And. Right. You know, that I hope hopefully people listening will hear that and and learn what I'm still learning that it's okay. You can talk about this openly and you need to with your partner or with someone like you because it can be healed obviously. I mean proof positive I see that in you, you know. Right. And I think often the the most important person, well the most important person is uh is that we we admit this to ourselves and then if we're partnered that we are able to have that conversation. But then next in line 
is definitely our healthcare provider or providers mm. because as you experience and I experience and everyone I know who's, who's gone through a, a process of trying to heal pelvic pain has experienced, it can take a long time to find the right person. And often the difficulty can be because we're not talking about it enough. If we were talking about it with friends, for instance, they might be able to say, you know, I know this terrific urologist yeah. that needed me for something else, but, you know, he's a great guy. And why don't you go see him? Right. Or that we'd tell our doctor and they'd say, oh, you know, it's fine. Or let's just try another round of antibiotics. And, and we might be able to say, because it's more open, we might be able to say, you know what? I want a referral. I want to see a specialist. And I think that because we're not talking about it, we're not really pressuring mm. our our doctors and other medical providers, and in some cases, relevant cases, mental health providers, we're not pressuring them to be better informed around these issues because the demand is not there and the demand has to come from us and the demand has to start with us feeling not ashamed that we've got it, these issues. Yeah, shame is such a huge factor. I mean, being embarrassed... I, I, I remember it. I mean, I was I remember even just being embarrassed when my wife and I were dating in the early years, you know, that to even bring it up, these physical issues, you know, nobody wants to talk about that. I didn't want to. I mean, I remember. Yeah. What I meant earlier, I wanted to ask you about that is trauma entanglements is kind of where I was going with that. And I derailed myself, but. And it made me wonder if you've experienced that, where you see two different types of trauma. And that's partly why I, I shared that story, where you have like a childhood sexual trauma, but then you also have like a physical trauma. Then those two yeah. things aren't related necessarily, but they they end up in this strange symbiosis together where you don't know where one's sort of informing the other and you can't. They, they keep almost feeding each other. Oh, yeah. And I would, uh, first of all, I, I think a lot of people have some kind of medical trauma mm. and, and or relationship trauma that may not be as explicit. It could be, for instance, something that we might not think of as, as being traumatic, but let's say that we were in a relationship where we were rejected repeatedly. That's a kind of trauma, oh, sure. and it triggers certainly childhood issues around abandonment or rejection. So I think that uh, that could be, you know, something that's going on, right, that uh, that's now layered on top. Then there is medical trauma, right, if we have had some kinds of medical, could just be one procedure or, you know, or even just one exam, which made us really um, pull back and, and, and have some kind of adverse physical reaction. That can be wired in, like touching that hot stove. Oh, yeah same neurology yeah um and if things have gone on for a while as they did with you and and with me then that becomes a, a kind of setting i guess within us yeah that's and a good way to put it it's a setting yes i, I yeah. like that think of it that way and then what about our parents and their attitudes towards sex right their own traumas, perhaps, in this department, and how those, of course, are going to be layered on top of our 
just our our whole worldview with regard to love and intimacy and touch and connection and um and sexuality so there's a lot of things that are that are present for us i think for all of us and we're only just perhaps starting to to talk about these things me too is is a good start just to say you know there's a lot of abuse there's yeah. a lot of abuse and it affects a, it affects people of all genders so that's that's the start here but i think we've got to now yeah i believe go into these different areas and talk about all the things that are going on for us and that it's not just let's say young beautiful women <laughs> right. who are harassed in the workplace right it's uh it's more than that it is that but it is more than that too yeah for sure i i agree with that i mean i i i drew parallels to that when i was r- reading your book and then going through your website and you were talking about your family um you know and the nazis and the holocaust <laughs> and i was like wow so there's some generational sort of pain there that that's a huge thing that could get entangled you know as well yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and and i i started you know of course we didn't have that in our family our history but there were other things and i go yeah those things get you know like infidelity and things like that inform you as a child and i think depending on which gender you are even it can inform you differently Mm. you know like being a young boy and perceive and seeing infidelity mm. you know that's, and then yeah. you get that entangled with um a, a relative being sexually abused and then the injustice and then a physical ailment you got three orbs of it's just yeah. interesting to look at it that way sort of clinically and go yeah these three things aren't connected really but because they exist in someone, one human being, they, they've nested together, you know? That's right. And, and I love the way you're saying that they've nested together. And what I recommend when I'm coaching people is that they, they, they dig and they dig and they pull it all apart so that each strand can be looked at individually. Yeah. And. And because each of them may need something slightly different, but because they're interrelated, often the remedy can also be nested together. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Of, yeah, yeah. But I think first we've got to we've got to see what are these uh, what are the different component parts, what are the different things that are going on because often they do have something similar. And so that's why I'm saying the remedy can also be be similar, and it can be something even simple. It could just be a a way of uh, like that communication I was talking about with a spouse, just a maybe a a thirty minute or a fifteen minute conversation once a week with with our spouse to just to to air out uh, you know different things that are going on with us in this department or generally. Just because then that's going to work on the the shame, right? Mm. You see, from but even if it's got different culprits, it's going to work on perhaps the shame. You know, it's going to address maybe feelings of of uh, you know disempowerment or fear of of hurting another person uh, or not wanting to be um, you know not wanting to be a perpetrator. There's a lot of different um, 
a lot of different things we can uh, we can address with just I think this kind of simple communication. And if somebody's not partnered, or e even in addition to that, definitely um, just connecting to our own erotic self, just to um, in a healthy way, just to validate it and to give it some space and to listen to ourselves to see well, what what would I like out of this uh, this part of my life. Yeah. It's beautiful. And that's really what your book's all about, right? I mean, and so we haven't really talked about that a whole, whole lot. I'd love to let the listeners know, like, what, what they can expect when they read your book. I mean, because it has some exercises and, you know, things that they can do in the book. Yeah. Well, at the end of each chapter, I have some writing prompts and uh, and also an exercise that everybody can try and it's related particularly to what's going on in that chapter so it's not necessarily a linear process that i lay out in the book though in my courses i, I do since it's um yeah since i i can i can do something that's more of a system right but but in the book it's uh yeah it's contextualized by what's going on at, the, at that point in the story right and I meant it to not be linear because that's also can be true for what's going on for people. And I wanted people to read my story and to see what maybe resonated for them in terms of questions they might ask themselves because people might, um, they might enter their own healing journey at, at any point or continue that healing journey at any point. And I, I wanted to just inspire investigation in a, in a, in a way that was, um, yeah, that wasn't prescribed. Um, but that was, uh, you know, just inspired by, yeah. uh, by what was going on in, in the book. Yeah. I liked that about it. I really enjoyed the book. I mean, I, I, I was, it was a breath of fresh air in the sense that you were, I loved your language, so to speak. I, uh, I thought, wow, she's got such a colorful way of describing some of these things that you were describing in the book you know situations and it was I, I was almost like with there several times i felt like man i can feel this like this oh thank you so much that was that your is this your first book yeah it is and i worked really hard to be able to do that <laughs> and it's really good i was like yeah i get this like i there was um there was definitely i didn't realize until after i read your book that you were involved with theater uh, to the extent that you were, and then the the, the yeah. play that you had put together, which right. uh, we can talk about that actually if you want. But I could now, once I realized that, I was like, oh, you can sense it. Like I was, there was definitely like films playing in my mind. Um, the scenes were rich and textured. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, um, writing for the theater for a long time is really different because we don't describe things. Everything takes place right in front of the audience oh, and yeah. action takes place during mostly through dialogue and a, through stage directions but you're seeing that you're not reading it so developing the muscle or muscles for being able to to do description was uh was yeah it was a whole journey for me a whole new learning curve i have to actually say like i know this and i don't know if Maybe this is irrelevant. Maybe it's not even the same space. I don't know if that's where you're at, but your walls are rose pink, and you describe oh. <laughs> they look you mean like behind me behind you. Yeah, and you mentioned yeah, that in the book. Lavender. 
Lavender? Okay. From yeah. It looks kind of pink, and I thought, that's so funny because I remember that part in the book where you were talking, you were describing the walls where you're in your living space, and they were rose pink, and it allowed you to sort of forget that there was this man in your, you know, in the home, and... <laughs> The, the, and it, which was an in, indicator that sex was a part of life and it was this pain associated with it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, man, this is so interesting because yeah. I get this. And then just when you pulled up your video and I saw the, the color, it kind of just brought that to my mind. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, this is kind of um, it's not a compromise because, well, we live in a different apartment now across yeah. the hall. That's the, yeah, that's the last chapter of the book. And we. We couldn't do pink walls, of course, although we, one room is pink, but uh, it's a very small room. But this is our shared office, and uh, and we both agree that, that a lavender would be a, a good nice. neutral color for us because we like color. So. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Could you talk a little bit about your uh, the play that you wrote? I think that was really neat. I was like, man, this is such a – she's taken this and really – utilizing all of your talents which i think is one of one of my favorite things about talking to people is how they take their pain perhaps and then they take their talents put them together and make these beautiful things yeah thank you so i actually i'll just preface it by saying i'm now turning it into a a tv show really yeah, so I'm going through a similar process and taking the same source material and and bending it and and learning new new writing skills. So yeah, so I was I was creating I, I have created seven one person plays. This was my my very strange specialty. I started writing one person plays or I started writing monologues back in 1989. Okay. 1989, I wrote my first monologue. I was an actor in New York, and I just spontaneously wrote a monologue one day for my roommate. It was from a, a guy's point of view. And and then they just kind of flowed from there. One monologue turned into a, a, a one-person show that I did that was comprised of three monologues, a, a full evening of theater. And then I just kept going with that, and I, I, I did that. For a long time, for 20 years, I was creating these one-person pieces, and and that's what I did with this material. I uh, I, I wanted to create a one-person play, but it does have a very special function in the in the in my story. In that, I I got the play commission, and I I just decided spontaneously that I was going to write about my sex problems, but my sex problems were very much not healed at that point at all. Interesting, yeah. And so I wasn't going to write about a journey I'd been on. I was going to go, I was going to use the opportunity to go on the journal. It was more like investigative journalism. Ah. I was going to discover how to heal by writing about it in real time. And I had a deadline. I was. I knew they were going to give me this reading. I was going to put it on the stage, and so. And that's what I needed. I needed to feel like, okay, I've got to get this figured out by this day because I'm going to do this big thing. And it was, it was just a huge, <laughs> a huge risk because I was going to talk about this extremely personal 
part of not just my life, but my marriage, my husband's life, which right. caused a big conflict between us. And but it worked. It worked because I I just I needed to be I needed to be public about this in, initially in order to free me up to investigate different things and to take this seriously, I want to say, to take my pleasure seriously. Otherwise, I would not have committed to it. I wouldn't have committed to my own pleasure or being generous with myself. I would have said, no, it's, it's enough if I, if I don't, uh, don't have good feelings when I'm intimate. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. See, I've thought about that quite a bit, and I will say this is one of the this is personal, but I mean, I get it. It's like being generous with yourself. I Because I was in pain so much, I had to think about the, the intimacy had to be about the other person so much because there was a, a reserve of my attention that was on my own pain. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, so... Definitely. Yeah? Okay. So I, there was this yeah. sort of... Um, thing that emerged where I became more servicing, if that makes that's the word I'll use, to the other to my partner. And it was like, well, I want to make sure that I'm servicing them properly because I'm probably not gonna be able to enjoy this. Oh, wow. Does that make sense? And so I became almost like more... So analogous. Yeah, that that's... uh, that was one of not, not and now that the pain is not there i guess that still remained it was like a i learned how to be generous to another person the problem is i haven't learned how to be generous to myself yet yeah yeah uh, i still haven't really learned that but it's interesting the way you're you're saying that like that's that seems to keep coming up on the show through different vehicles this idea huh. that compassion uh, you have to have at some point you have to be compassionate to yourself. You can't just keep pouring out in from an empty cup, uh, right. so to speak. It came up in another conversation this week and the week before, and I'm like, you know, I need to learn this too. This is yeah. I need to learn this. I hope that somebody listening learns that too, and in in this context as well. Definitely, and I so love that image of the cup because I think that it's. Uh, I've heard it described that when you fill your own cup, it just uh, it just naturally spills over. You've got something, right? You've yeah. got excess that that can just be given generously. And when but when the cup is not full, then there is a, a lack. And even if we are wanting to be generous to other people, it's a part of us is perhaps resentful because we don't we don't have enough we're not filled up and so i I really do identify with that because i i or i experience it like that that when i do fill myself up in this way that it's oh yeah 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 i i just i have so much more to give yeah and that's a state i would rather live in than from a state of lack because i think when you you give from lack and I know I've experienced this many times in my life and it's not that you're looking for accolades or pat on the back or recognition, but when you're giving from lack, I think it has the potential to build resentment possibly yeah. when, because you're feeling depleted. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. and you maybe don't even realize it, but there's like a buzz in the background, you know, nagging. And yes. if you fill your own cup, you you can give, and it doesn't feel that way. And I, I'm learning that slowly. <laughs> At 46, I'm still learning, you know. It's, we just keep I, learning. Exactly. <laughs> it goes on and on. The learning goes on and on and on, thankfully. Yes, thankfully. That's right. That We were just having this conversation last night. And actually, it, it, I'd actually be curious, now that we've brought this up, what you think about cancel cancel culture? Because you've you brought up the Me Too movement, and um, we were talking about this last night in my my family. I said, you know, I've seen like um, movie directors that I really like. Let's say that makes that are making movies that I'm going, hey, I can't wait to see the next one. And then like a um, a sexually insensitive, or maybe just an insensitive tweet that they made a decade ago. Uh, will come out, and then all of a sudden they're just canceled. Uh, they are fired from the movies they're doing. Fans run the other direction. And then I've seen a few times where the person, you know, when you watch their interviews or something, they're like, man, I'd, I've changed in 10 years. You know, I'm not that same person, but I'm being sort of canceled based on a behavior that I have, that I no longer, or a worldview that I no longer adopt. You know, words that I said that I no longer adhere to that I'm sorry for. But it makes me wonder about that. I mean, in in the context of what we're talking about, how important it is to allow people to change, like make room for them to change, too. Like, I want to change. I want room for me to change. But it seems like we don't want to leave room for other people to change. We lock them into whatever was the most painful behavior that we experienced. You know, yeah. like like a divorce, for instance. I was just talking about this with my son. I said, you know, if you people get divorced for various reasons, right? And I said, you know, if I um, I have a world view, a view of your of my ex wife that is fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old, you know, and if you asked her about me, she would have her worldview of me would be fifteen or sixteen or seventeen years old, and they're probably neither one very good. But if we got to, but if we met today and it was the first encounter, we might think, oh, that's a that's generally a nice person that I don't feel any of those things about. <laughs> We've changed, <laughs> you know what I mean? People change. People change, yeah, definitely. I think that. Uh, so I have a couple of thoughts about it. Okay. One is that I think the way that we're pay, that we're framing it currently, in like either or, either we're gonna. Let's say the the person who comes to campus, right, whose yeah. views are not popular. Right. Either right. we're going to let that person speak on campus, or we're going to cancel the engagement because it, you know, this person pisses off too many people. Right. So it's, uh, I think that, uh, and then people are up in arms, no matter what what the ultimate, you know, right. administrative decision is. Half of the, <laughs> right. You know, half the people are going to be up in arms around it. So I think that. Part of the problem for me is that we're not we're just not looking at this uh, with enough. Compl- we're not really uh, addressing the, the different nuances and the complexities. We're looking at it in a very simplistic way. And in so doing, we're not maybe getting at the heart of the issue. So the people who don't want so and so to come to campus, there is a pain there. Right. A legitimate pain. And. 
often when we're saying, well, they have every right, first, uh, you know, First Amendment rights, and we can't be, uh, you know, in unpopular views or important for right for discourse and intellectual uh, development, uh, we're not often that point of view is not addressing the pain. And at, so we're not we're not bringing that into the conversation and asking people, well, what, what aside from not having so and so speak, what do you need? Because often the desire to not have this person speak is uh, is just it's it's another manifestation of somebody saying, listen, I don't I don't feel like my my pain is acknowledged. Yeah, I think that that's at the source of this. If gotcha. somebody feels that their pain or victimization, uh, harm, is not being acknowledged, and so it it needs to come out this way because there aren't enough channels ah. um, to express that. So I think that that needs to be brought into the conversation. And on the other side, I think that often we're not what we're not bringing into the conversation is just general um, uh, general skill building around resilience yeah. and um, and around how we can be together with differing voices and have conversations together and feel um, and everyone feel not just heard and acknowledged but also resilient that we're not gonna crumble if um, you know if somebody disagrees with us or somebody is, right. is hostile to our even hostile to our, our point of view. So I just think we're, we're not really, we're not doing enough, uh, we're, not do, we're not looking at this with enough uh, of, a, of a, let's say, a, a, an in-depth lens, you know, or a, 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 we need more of a microscope to, to just see the different layers because I think that it may not be such, of an, such an issue if we, um, if we could just address what was really going on. Yeah, those are both very enlightened answers. I'm so glad you gave them because I agree with that. And I, I think skill building, it makes me think about just the skill of having conversations and listening. I mean, that's something that I see being lost in a lot of the public arena is the ability to actually listen and, and just for a moment, see some, listen to someone's point of view um, and not see it as an attack against your point of view. It can be their point of view. You don't have to adopt it, you know? Um, but it seems like now we live sort of in a time where that is seen as an attack. If you don't adopt the point of view or affirm that it is accurate or that you believe it as well, then it's seen as uh, an attack. And I think we have to move past that space big time. Definitely. And we also have to move past attacking because I think yeah. that it's gotten to a stage where we do attack each other yeah. rather than disagree, rather than purely yeah. disagree. And I think it's not necessarily just a perception, but often it is a it is an approach. It is a kind of aggressiveness around our position yeah. and a lack of humility yeah. that we, we don't have it all figured out. And, uh, and this is our worldview, and maybe these are our strong beliefs, but that doesn't mean it's the quote-unquote truth. It just means that this is, um, or it's our truth, right? Right, but, right. But it's it's not everybody's truth. It's like um, it's like saying, you know, if somebody believes in in a, a Christian God versus a, a you know a Jewish God, right? It's not <laughs> right, can't right. say 
I don't believe that it's, you know, it's valid to say, um, oh, well, only my God exists and your God doesn't exist because um, we might find commonality, right? Right, say, commonality. Okay. <laughs> I, I agree. It's, it's, I love it when, I read, when I'm reading books, you know, like I love to read Thomas Merton, but I also leave to, love to read books by Tibetan teachers. And what I love about that is when they begin to talk about monastic life or the structures yeah. of monasticism, I'm like, this is the interesting part. They come from completely different traditions. I mean... All, the the boiled down goodness that comes out of them is is similar or the same, uh, but they don't come from the same place necessarily. I mean, they're not informed by the same history or geography or any of that or lineages. But when they start talking about their monastic life and they start using words like abbot and monastery and cell, and I'm like, this is so strange. They live, they come from completely different worlds, but they have this incredibly common language and structure that they all live by. And I love that. I think that's just so beautiful. So when you see some that are really enlightened get together to dialogue, they just love it so much because they're both enriched by their differences. Mm. And I think that's the most beautiful thing that two things that could be, couldn't be more different can actually just really compound and enrich each other. It kind of makes me go back to what you were talking about earlier about having three different um, traumas, but the solution is, and I got this picture in my head when you were talking about, I kept thinking of these compound pharmacists, you know, that actually make a customized compound for you. And I was like, that's what it reminds me of. You eat everything. Everybody almost needs their own compound solution to some degree. I love that. The compound solution, but it's it's one cream. Yeah, one cream. <laughs> you don't need that's, three right. that's right. <laughs> I'm gonna use that. Oh, I love that so much. But what I also love so much, and this seems like it's um you know, at the heart of your work, right? Ecumenical, right? This uh, ec- ecumenical uh, spiritual path is uh you know, I, I, well, first of all, I just love that and really respect what you're doing so much and, and speaking to people from all these different traditions. But then I love what you're saying, how we're enriched by the differences. It's not just that we find something that we can all agree upon, let's say, but yeah. that we are enriched. We are, oh, how do you pray? Oh, that's really right. interesting. Right. Wow, you, you do that. Huh. You do that on your knees, or you do that with movement. Mm, maybe I'll try that. <laughs> right. I yeah, I know. I have this dream, like in this this wish in my mind. I, I daydream about it all the time. Of not of a uh, in our community here where I lived of of having a, a multicultural center mm. where people from different traditions come and help teach each other and there's no and it's exactly what you just described where they are enriching each other like there's actually a eagerness to learn not to be you know uh converted you know to still remain true in your own tradition but to be able to go oh i can pick from this tree you know over here you know a pomegranate is not an apple and an apple is not a pomegranate but but i can hand you that and you can hand me this and then we can both enjoy those flavors you know what I mean? I mean, I think this, it seems so simple, <laughs> but yeah. it just seems it ends up being so complex in a world full of strong ideas and positions. 
Yeah, and maybe that's the that that is the, our our opinions and our ideas are too strong in a way that you know they they uh, they lack um, yeah lack humility to you know just to see that uh, to be that openness to see how others do it. But I I got a chill when you were talking about that center. I really think you need to do that, and I could see you know, there's so much disagreement in the world. I could see, you know, people coming together around even the most contentious issues. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, and being, instead of fighting, imagine being inspired by each other. I and know. saying, oh, like, I, you know, without getting into any details around the election, because, you know, it was so contentious. And, yeah. Um, but, you know, just, you know, just in broad strokes, just, oh, that's so, wouldn't it be great, you know, people from both sides, that's so interesting that that's at the heart of your, of your position. I, I, I want to, I, I want to, not just I want to understand you, but I want that to enrich my life, right? Oh, right. fairness. Oh, that's how you see fairness. That, that, that's inspiring to me. You know, it's interesting to hear, we're, I know we I didn't expect us to end up going down this path, but that happened to me recently, and it was related to the election, where I was, and I'll just be, I'll just openly talk about it, instead of just beating around the bush, I'll just say okay. it the way it is. It may be easier to talk about it that way. You know, one of the spiritual directors to the White House was Paula White, I believe was her name, and she's... Uh, an evangelical minister. She has a big church. And I think there's, there was a popular video of her going around, you know, saying angels are coming from Africa. Angels are coming from Africa and strike, 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 strike. And it sort of looks like, and I'm just going to be honest. Like when I look at it, I go, this person's really unhinged. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I thought when I was watching it. I was like, she's really unhinged, you know? And it's easy to do that. And, you know, and I and I won't say that I still that I subscribe to her worldview at all or her religious sensibilities or spiritual for that matter. But I I happened to stumble across this guy who had he's sort of made it his work to uh, explain what we're seeing when we see things like that because he was sort of he was in that world and he's sort of been freed from it is the way his language the way he says i've been freed from that but i don't i want to help you understand why people think like this and it was strange because i I had no compassion almost had no compassion for paula white i really didn't i had none i would watch that and would just sort of i hate to admit this publicly but like i just would go I, i just that's just a ball of crazy i don't want anything to do with I, I mean, I just would just shove it in that corner of my mind. But once I listened to him talk about that world, he 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 was explaining what she was saying and why people would follow someone like that and what they were under what they were getting out of that. And I was like, wow! All it took was somebody to stop me from shoving her aside and explain it to me. And once I listened to what he had to say, I was like, okay. I still disagree with her, but now I'm informed yeah. and I'm not just being um, callous or crass. I look at her with an, with an intelligent understanding of why she's saying what she's saying. And from her worldview and the people surrounding her, there's meaning in that. And I had never, right. you know, I'd never seen it before. I was sitting there kind of taking it again, uh, shamefully just saying, oh, that's, that's bad, crazy shoving box over here put aside. And yeah. that and if, and I guess my point in saying all that is I wish we could all do that when we see something that's alien 
We don't have to subscribe to it, but we could at least make an effort to understand it. Certainly. And what, you know, what you're pulling out of that as well is that if people are really responding to that, to her and her message, then I think it behooves us to, especially if people are doing that en masse, to see, well, what is it? What is it here? I don't agree or I don't, this is not my worldview, but what is it that is compelling for this group of people? Because I, I think there's something there if so many people are responding, there's something there, uh, 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 there is a chord, right, that she's, that right. she's striking. And, and I think that, yeah, it behooves us to have understanding and compassion around that so yeah. that we're not, we're not just demonizing all these followers then saying, well, right. she's obviously crazy. So these people are deluded and that's the end of it. Yeah, right. Exactly. It, it shuts us off to learning for one and then it really does have i feel like in analyzing myself after really looking at that i went you know i can i'm just as bad on my side of the fence by doing that you know i'm i'm if i'm expecting other people to be open-minded and look back at me and what i practice or or when anybody that i or what i want them to do with other people offer that same compassion how can i then do this to this person doesn't mean again that i have to adopt it but uh, yeah, I don't know. It gets back into, the, I guess, that part we were talking about, about being uh, allowing people to change and giving them the same room and consideration that we want, you know? Yeah, definitely. I'm happy. I know it. I'm hey there, Good News listener. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed producing it. Now, it's time for the Fishing for Goodies segment, where I turn my interviewer role over to the Good News Fishbowl. Longtime listeners know that the Fishbowl contains over 400 unique questions, many seated by you, the listeners. Did you know that you could submit unique questions to the Fishbowl? That's right. Just call the Good News Hotline at 802-459-1668 to have your question added. You can also visit findthegood.news and send me an email. Now, let's take that dive into the fishbowl. So look, I you listened to, did you listen to Bridget's episode of Find the Good News? I didn't. Oh. I didn't get to listen to it. I did listen to the other ones that you sent me though. Oh, and, good. Uh, yeah, but I didn't get to listen to Bridget's yet. So then you know about this fishbowl then. I do. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, then I won't get into the big spill about it. Uh it's got over 400 questions in here. I do not know what's going to come out. So I'm going to draw three questions. And let's just see what happens. So cool. Okay, I like this question. This is something I think about all the time. If you could go back, what would you like to change about your education? Well, that's an easy one for me because uh, my whole journey was about sex education so and feeling like i didn't have any knowledge really when i started my journey even though i was already in my uh in my 40s well into my 40s so yeah so i would change my sex education from a very very early age so that i knew what pleasure was for the female body what pleasure was for my own body i would know about agency that i had agency that i had power that i had the ability to reimagine what sex is so that it worked for me 
so many things I think are missing from um, from our sex education, certainly my sex education. So I think that's going to be my my number one answer. That's a good answer. I think that I think we need to have that. I think children need that. I mean, not, you know, granted within reason, but I mean, to some degree, I mean, we need to have more open conversations about it. And I think it'll uh, do away with a lot of shame that we have, which causes us to not have conversations about it. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. a great answer. It's, it, it's actually a good question for you, too. <laughs> the fishbowl provides. Okay. Well, this is such a similar question, but okay. what an odd thing. Okay. What was your favorite subject in school? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So <laughs> My favorite subject in school, let's see. Um Well, up until high school, my favorite subject was everything. Really? Yes. I loved school. Really? And even now, yeah. And even just thinking about it, I can smell those hallways, especially oh. in the morning when you first get into school. And it's it's a little bit of... Um, the disinfectant that they use to yeah bit, i know what right? you're talking about like the, the mop that whatever that was that they mopped the bathrooms and the halls with yeah but it's mixed in with uh talking about compounding it's mixed in with the lunch room and what's what's gonna happen for uh-huh. lunch so it could be like a, a smell of um like hot dogs yeah. like a little scent of like some kind of you know hot dogs and um, and then that's mixed in with the smell of, um, I want to say the furniture seemed to have its own smell and all the chalk. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was, I just, I love that. I just love that smell. And I just, yeah, I loved school. <laughs> I did. That was one of those, those really annoying kids who sat up front and and asked a lot of questions and it wasn't until I got to high school that my my strength my academic strengths and weaknesses became a bit more apparent to me Uh, okay (laughs) (laughs) and uh, you know I wasn't very good in math class and uh, I really loved English class and so I I didn't like PE oh yeah (laughs) <laughs> we were similar in that regard. I didn't like math very much. I liked, I loved English, uh, PE, not so much, you know, <laughs> it's just the same thing. I, uh, I can relate yeah. to that. Yeah. I, I think it was the idea of school. It's so different now too. I mean, for my children. Oh yeah. How old are your kids? Um, I've got one that's 22. So she's not, she's out of the home. Um, I've got one that's 17. He's a senior and another that is 10. And so school. Um, oh, oh, I've got okay. one that's seventeen, who's a senior in high school, and oh. then my uh, youngest oh. is ten. So oh, I have boy. one that's older, is twenty-two, but she's she's gone out of the home. But yeah, oh, school's that. changed. It's so complicated with COVID, and we have had two hurricanes here uh, this summer, oh, and so we got hit direct hit twice. And uh, so our kids have been out of school and trying to do online school, and now they're back to face to face. But COVID is spiking oh, again, yeah. and it's just it's complicated. Their their lives it's are so mess. complicated right now. I feel sorry for huh. the kids in the world. They're oh, just yeah. 
This Me isn't too. this isn't what we grew up with, and um, trying to help them navigate it is a lot more counseling. Honestly, I mean, it's just trying to keep them motivated and positive, and teaching them that yeah. things pass, you know. And yeah, but it's not something we've ever experienced right. in our time, so it's not like we even have great answers we don't know right. when they can go back to school exactly and yeah that's hard that's hard for kids and parents yeah it's just a different time i mean it's complicated hopefully we're learn. i hope we are i hope that we will draw i believe we will i mean i know some many people will will learn good things and be able to use that to teach people through it but i collectively i don't know at large what's happening is a little different but i know on an individual scale i do see people making good out of it yeah yeah that was a good good question i always love how these questions lead to other things you just never know where they're going i also love that you tie memory to to the smells too and i was thinking of something when i was listening to you i was like that's interesting because uh I have a smell that's actually, and this, that don't, this doesn't mean to sound gross, but I mean it's a good smell. I have a smell that reminds, makes me think of sex. Really? Yeah. Years ago, oh. I found this, there was this lotion that my wife oh. loved and I loved. It was masculine, but kind of sweet. And it was like, almost like a ritual. Like that was sort of like get a, get a nice hot shower and then put that lotion on. And it was like the bed smelled like that. And so I, for years, I always associated that as our, that with that smell with our time together. Well, yeah. they discontinued it. Oh no. Yeah. And so it was funny about two or three months ago, I was doing some cleaning in my, uh, lavatory area and I had, found a bottle of it that i had not opened and i was like i kind of rubbed it on my arms one morning i was like michelle smell this and she was like oh my gosh that smell and it's funny how a smell can like (laughs) just bring you back it's like oh that's that's definitely a sex smell (laughs) that is really really fantastic yeah but you know that's what that's that pleasure um the pleasure access point i was talking about before when you're and and it sounds like like that's that worked its way organically into your own practice and into your own um into your own loving is that uh right that we do need that transition i I would venture to say most of the time for those of us you know who live busy lives and uh and it's so great when you can find something that does trigger your senses in yeah. a way that uh, that helps you make that transition. And uh, so it's like you don't have to overthink it. It's just like, okay, I know, shower, lotion, that's going That's it, help right. <laughs> that's funny. You said switch <laughs> earlier. Like we were talking about a negative, like a pain, that there's a switch in there. But I do, but, and I believe that even with spiritual things. That's why I, I really advocate people to have objects and items that are special to them to carry them on your body or to um have them laying around i mean my my life is cluttered with what i call secondhand sacred objects that (laughs) are important to me and when i see them they 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 trigger and i I think that we can consciously plant those things and they help override negative things you know if we have so many unseen like insidious negative switches 
Yes. Let's plant some good ones. That's a good way to do it. I even have a name for it. I call them healthy triggers. Healthy triggers. Yeah. It is triggering. And I think we can work the same where that we can work that mechanism, just like you're saying, work it in a positive way, work it in a way to counterbalance the negative triggers. Yeah. That's, That's a healthy. I'm glad we talked about that, actually. Yeah. Okay. So this is man another good question. This is your last question. Okay. So describe what life may be like for you in three years if you allow your bad habits to stop you. Wait, say it again? Okay, so this is a complex question, but it's pretty good. Huh. Describe what okay. your life will be like. It says in three years, but just generally is the way I would say it. Describe what your life would be like if you don't allow your bad habits to stop you. So that almost like, (laughs) like as the saying, acknowledge what your bad habits may be that are getting in your way. Yeah. Oh, I, I acknowledge them every day because they, they want to get in my way every day. No, me too. Definitely. (laughs) Lots of, lots of bad habits, lots of, lots of, um, negative programming, you know, just kind of waiting there, waiting there for me to, um, to you know to let my guard down and then it'll the default you know kind of go into that default mode yeah so but if but i love this question okay so if but if i don't i thought it was going to ask me to say what would it look like if, if I, I just left? let them like stop me i might have even read it wrong yeah, that <laughs> that was probably what i said the first time that's, like depre- that's really depressing okay so let the opposite yeah so if i don't let if i don't let it i i just love this question so much so because it's acknowledging that this is going on for all of us right that or i'm assuming that it's going on for many of us that yeah. we've got this negative stuff or um or just you know old let's say old patterns that are yeah want to sabotage our efforts so if i don't let that stop me all right i've got uh three years is perfect because I've, I've got this whole plan now you know since right? it's the end of the year <laughs> i'm like gearing up for 2021 i've got i've got the lists i've got <laughs> Right. <laughs> the plans, the strategies. Okay, so here's here's how it works. Um, so these are my three biggest goals. Um, so my biggest goal is I am I, I mentioned uh, when we were talking about the play that I'm working on this right. uh, teleplay for uh, a, a streaming series like HBO, um, a streaming network. Yeah. So. And I am in the process of collaborating with a couple of friends of mine who work in television to to put together this pilot and uh, and pitch this to a producer that I had the opportunity to meet and was invited through a, um, a, a certain kind of workshop, invited to pitch her. So if I don't, if the demons don't get in the way, then I'll be uh, pitching her. And if she declines, then I'm going to keep going. I'm going to uh, get this made into a television show. That's exciting. Yeah, it's the book, you know, in TV form. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and uh, so that's my big goal. And then in addition to that, uh, I want to, I call it um, for shorthand, I want to become a a sexual healing influencer. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And uh, just really start a, a, not just a conversation, but a kind of a movement around open conversation around all of these, these, uh, these topics 
that could fall under that umbrella and create these cross conversations of people like we were just having yeah having vastly different sources for their pelvic pain but being able to offer each other um commiseration and ideas and encouragement and validation and compassion so that's my my vision is to be able to create that and uh yeah build a following around this basically just to normalize discussion to the extent that it allows people to um to help others and to seek the help that they need that's wonderful i mean you know i'm listening to you and i'm thinking this is exactly what we we can all do right i mean so much of our life is directed or influenced by trump traumatic things in the past whether it's sex or otherwise and, it, and a lot of times it's negative. It's causing negative things to happen in our lives. Yeah. But what if, I mean, that's beautiful to take that, those very things and go, okay, I'm going to allow these to influence good. You know, they, they, they're, everything's energy. And if that energy is there, it's still vital, even if it, it it's still usable, I guess. Right. right? I mean, it's like dual fuel i guess would be the way i mean it may not necessarily be the kind of it may be negative on the surface it may come from trauma but it's still fuel and i can still make something run with it and that what i'm going to put it in is what is going to matter the most you know i can i don't know if that makes any sense what i just said but it's like i love that that's such a great way of just just encapsulating that so yeah so beautifully and so succinctly wow well, yeah. I have one more question to ask you. It's the last okay. question of the show. It doesn't come from the fishbowl. I've asked almost okay. every guest. And it's, uh, did anything good happen today? Thank you so much. That's uh, that's such a great question. Yeah, lots of great things happened today. Uh, I woke up super energized because yesterday I... I found some people to help me in my business as I'm putting together strategies and I found a great person to help me do some of the technical stuff for this uh, this podcast I'm going to launch. Excellent. So I just found some great, uh, I haven't worked with them yet, but I just my heart and soul and gut says these are going to be great uh, people to help me right now in exactly what I need. And so I woke up just incredibly motivated and clear, and I had the best morning. Um, I just bought this new tea, and I was just drinking a whole pot of this very, <laughs> very caffeinated but tasty tea. And so I was like very wired and <laughs> and kind of high from yesterday. And I didn't sleep that much because uh, I was I couldn't fall asleep with all these ideas. Yeah, right. right. I, I had one of those mornings where I was just like all the all the ideas were flowing, and I was super super enthusiastic. And um, anyway, so yes, yeah, so my whole my whole day's been awesome. I That's say. great. I love hearing things like that. You know, I mean, that is why I asked that question because it just gives us an opportunity for a minute to count. I guess just the old old adage of counting your blessings. You know, yeah. uh, it's so easy as we started our conversation to focus on this sort of array of negativity that could flood into our lives and. Um, you know, I like to think of it as like catching fireflies for a minute, you know, and going, Hey, wait a second. 
there are good things. I mean, simple, good things to right. be grateful for that. We just skim by so often. I'm so guilty of it, you know, getting caught in the clock and just riding it around the wheel all day long until and missing all the wonder, you yeah. know, that's lovely. But then you've got this, which is pulling it out and asking people to, to pull that out and, uh, and sharing it with all of these listeners which is inspiring. Now it's going to inspire me, Oren, to think about, well, what was the good today, right? Or what, what, what is the good in this, this kind of crummy, what, what feels like a crummy situation? So, right. Right? so that also, <laughs> that, that's got its own, um, its own, it becomes its own catalyst. Yeah, absolutely. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I, I, is great. I could keep going on and on and on. I, I imagine we could probably keep talking and find all kinds of wonderful things to talk about. I'm actually excited to see what you do with your podcast. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, if you've got any tips at all, I mean, I, I, I've been listening to yours, as I said, and um, I just, uh, yeah, I love your format and your guests. And yeah, I just very organic flowing conversation you know you you're you really I, I, yeah i just I, i'm taking a lot from that the way you just really go with the conversation and don't try and control it that much but let it um let it reveal its magic yeah you know what it's like i, I know this is probably not the best way to describe it but i've always had this feeling it's almost like going on a first date it's what uh-huh. every one of these has i've tried to take that approach it's like what would i Every first date I've ever been on, I've probably been nervous and held back and didn't ask the questions I should have asked, didn't pay uh-huh. enough attention to the person in front of me, yeah. uh, didn't reveal who I really was when I should have. And I thought, you know, what would it be like if I was on a bunch of first dates? And that's what I've, you know, with everybody, I've tried to treat it that way. It's like, look, I'm just trying to get to know you through myself and this is who I am and give, please give me back who you are. And I've enjoyed it so much. I mean, if I can ever help in any way, yeah, let me know. I'd be more than glad to put out eyes and ears on anything you're doing. It's, I mean, really excited for you I mean, on that note. What is, um, how do you like for people to get engaged with you? I mean, I know you have lots of footprints online. Yeah. I, so social media is great. I love when people message me on social media or just follow me and, uh, I tend to follow people back. So, um, just so I can be in conversation and in communion with people. And, uh, so Twitter's a really good place to find me. I'm at Laura Zam okay. or Instagram, which is, uh, at Laura Zam underscore author. Okay. Or you just go to laurazam.com, okay. my website, and all my social media icons are there. So, um, and that's a good central place as well, especially as I, you know, continue to uh, upload new courses and my podcasts and all that sort of thing. That's going to be the hub, right? That's yeah. That's definitely the hub. Yeah, ever the ever evolving hub. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and I'd love to actually, Oren, I'd love to have you on my podcast. Ooh, I'd love to do on. that. Yeah, I really would love that. And if you are if you are willing, if you're um, and you you can think about it, you don't have to answer now. But I would love to hear you talk about your experience with this uh, with this chronic pain. Oh, I would love if, to uh, talk about it. I yeah. Just, okay, I would. That would be such a service to um, to let people know that that's um, 
you you can't be the only person who's right. Surely who's that's happy. what I thought too. You know, it's interesting. Sure. I mean, not to totally derail that, but I thought that you talked about erectile dysfunction in your book, and I and that was kind yeah. of what triggered it for me too. I thought, you know. What I went through wasn't erectile dysfunction, but it was something else. And I'll bet you there's people out there not talking about that. Men oh, yeah. and, and men, I don't even know what kinds of problems men have in that regard. Sexual trauma. I mean, it seems to me, in my experience, the when in the varieties of people I've met, most of the trauma has been, you know, inflicted on females uh, that I know less men that I know and what what it's made me wonder is that perhaps that men aren't talking about it as much yeah that's what I believe I I believe that men have been abused at um, you know maybe even I don't know if it's identical rates but I think it's it's way higher than we understand it to be especially um, you know childhood and, and early adolescence mm. um, but also when I talk to men when I do talks and 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 uh, you know, all kinds of things related to the book. What's been apparent to me, or what I've really just come to learn in the last year, is the degree to which, even if men don't have erectile dysfunction, and, and many do, of course, of all ages, but even if they don't, often it's in the back of their minds. It is a performance mm. anxiety. Um, and it's, um, there's that fear of it and a fear of inadequacy and uh it's just another it's another layer of healing that i think is we're not talking about enough and we're not honoring yeah. we're not honoring the the stuff that goes on for guys yeah. um the complexities that are going on for men physically and mentally and combination yeah interesting well i would love to be on your podcast i think that would be a, awesome. a fascinating conversation and maybe it would help love somebody it. that's what it's all about Perfect. Okay, so we've got we've got a. I'll, I'll let you know when, when I'm scheduling okay. guests. I will. I'm so thrilled about that. I'm more thankful every moment that I found. Thanks for listening to my Beacon Series conversation with Laura Zam. If you'd like to experience her book, The Pleasure Plan, visit findthegood.news/bookshop. If you found something of use in this conversation, consider visiting findthegood.news/donate or you can help me continue this good news mission from the Louisiana Gulf Coast. I thank you for pressing play and for syncing up with this good news beacon.